So through this process, which made me sound so smart as an engineer, mm-hmm. I, I bought this company and essentially that, that business is zero, right? Wow. Um, even though I bought like one month away from the great financial crisis, uh, which further solidifies the point that um, it's not so much about when you buy it. I have much more profitable companies buying from you know, 2007 mm-hmm. when this was just before the crash that you can buy at the totally right time and still make the wrong decision. Mm. So what, 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 what did your model miss about that company? Yeah. <laughs> what did my model miss? What was it in your spreadsheet? You know? <laughs> I think the biggest learning there is you, you can't reduce your companies into a single Excel line. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? Um, how can a large company with all its specialties be reduced to a few numbers? It, it just doesn't make sense. It's like, taking a piece of paper, poking a few holes in it, and then trying to look at the company through those few holes. You'll just get bits and pieces, but you'll never get a full picture. Oh, I love that. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firl.co slash free. Welcome back, everybody, to the FIRA Podcast, best place for long-term stock investors. Now, today, we have Mr. Hui Leong. He started his career as an engineer, went on to become a commodity manager, and then went in a short stint in the pharma industry, and finally, he got uh, deep into the world of stocks through Motley Fu. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Hui Leong. Hi, everyone. Yeah, thank you so much for spending your time with us, Long. I mean, it's a, it's a great pleasure. Um, probably let's start off with uh, your relationship with money growing <laughs> okay. up. You know, what, take, mm-hmm. you know, a 15-year-old Leong, did he get enough allowance from his parents <laughs> or was he complaining that allowance is not enough? You know, probably we, we start So now I'm supposed there. to complain about my mom. <laughs> if there is anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I think that uh, growing up, uh, my mom was uh, raising us up on her own. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my dad actually passed away when I was 18. Okay. And, yes, yes. Um, so sorry to hear that. Yeah. yeah, it's, well, I mean, it was the saddest part of my life, but then it was really long ago. So uh, time heals. Uh, but I, I think in terms of money, we have always uh, gotten by quite uh, frugally and but then uh, I think the key moment came probably uh, during, before I graduated, right? I see. Then I started to realize that I, I had to work just to get money. And that didn't feel like a really good uh, arrangement for me. Uh, I see. Because you, you just have to like keep on working to get that money. And I, I think that was where I started thinking about, uh, could I do it differently? Mm. Uh, which is where I, I started reading books like... Uh, there's this book called Multiple Streams of Income where you do not just rely on your salary, but you're able to build different streams of income, which mm. I think probably led to my uh, interest in the stocks. I see. And 
growing up, did you have peers, friends who actually talked about investing, or was it was it a very lonely journey when you you <laughs> were very interested in you know multiplying your income? You were very interested <laughs> in you know um, reflecting about not exchanging time for money. But w- was it a very lonely journey, or was was there many friends that you could talk to with, with this regards? Um, I I think that. In terms of investing, uh, within my family itself, I was a first-generation investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, around my uh, group of people, I, I don't think there were a lot of people who were interested in investing. So uh, was it lonely in this, this regard? Uh, I would say yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there was the internet, oh. and, uh, <laughs> which was a marvelous, marvelous thing, right? When I was growing up, uh, I, I remember the... the when I was in like form one, right in in my primary school in Penang, um, the, the first assignment that everyone got was to to uh, write about the school's history, right? Ah, and this was pre-internet days, right? Okay, and like you are totally new to the school, you're like first year student. <laughs> it's right. like where the hell are you gonna find any information at all? It's not just about not even about your writing skills. It's like just finding something to write about, right? It was such a traumatic experience I felt and I I felt that the internet was wonderful because it allows you to connect with so many people Mm. uh, just from the comfort of your own home yeah and you know um, Hui Leong is actually a Penang free boy oh yeah so (laughs) so. good (laughs) yeah I mean no lots of illustrious investors are from there Hui Leong Dato Chia Cheng Hai is a Penang free boy yeah yeah. have you managed to connect with him before? Uh, no, but I, I've actually met some of his people in Hong Kong. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay, right. okay. So, um, so that's uh, so. How do you get into engineering? You know. Yeah. What made mm-hmm. you choose engineering? Why did I choose engineering? <laughs> I, I think science was always something I enjoyed when I was young. Uh, maybe because I'm lazy. <laughs> because, yeah. um, like for for exams, right? Uh. I, I remember you have to study and remember all these sultan names which were like impossibly long mm, right. and it was so difficult to remember and make sense of but when it comes to mathematics once you understand something you don't really have to like go and revise about it if I you understand see. it you understand it right it's the the rest of it is just practice and, and making sure that uh you solidify whatever you know right and uh same goes for for uh, physics uh, things make sense and so on. Um, but then when it comes to things like uh, geography or history, it's all memory work uh, mm-hmm. back then. But uh, of course, as you grow older, I, I wish that they taught history in a very different way because um, yeah. <laughs> history is so interesting when you, you get into it, you, you get to find out how people uh, actually became who they are and uh, how entire industries or civilizations uh, behave, why they behave, why they, uh, the way they do. And I think that's uh, tremendously interesting. Yeah, MJ and I are both history buffs, uh, more so, you know. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Man. We'll get into that a little bit later. But, yeah. you know, what was the, you know, apart from reading the book about multiple streams of income, right? But mm-hmm. what got you interested into investing in general and then subsequently into stocks specifically? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think I can like point to one, one particular point where it's like uh, this was the moment, right? right. Uh, it's, I, I, I felt it's more like a slow burn which uh, sort of builds up over time. So 
uh, multiple streams of income uh, is one of the moments uh, where it got me interested in finding uh, other ways to earn money uh, to okay. create this multiple streams of income. Investing was the most uh, interesting option of all these multiple streams of income. And I actually started as uh, what you call a boglehead. Uh, ah, I invested head. in index funds. Index funds um, right. Don't try to pick the needle in the haystack, buy the whole haystack, mm. uh, that kind of mentality. And I started with index funds. Uh, the problem in Singapore is that um, index funds, I think there was only like one product back Whoa. then. <laughs> this was 2002, right? Okay. Uh, I think the ETF just got launched. I, I didn't know what, what an ETF was. There were so many questions around it. Uh, information was scarce. And... Um, so I, I sort of gravi gravitated towards uh, buying index funds for the S&P 500. Mm. Um, and then uh, probably somewhere around 2002, 2003, um, the company which I was in uh, was in chapter 11. Oh, oh wow. Okay. <laughs> right? So when you're in chapter 11, basically I'm, I was in procurement, right? There, okay. there was nothing to do. Right? Ah. So when I get bored, then we started fiddling around with things. We, we started uh, looking at the, our share price of our own company. Okay. And that's sort of like where the spark started and the interest started. Ah, okay. For me, uh, it's very similar to investing in a way because you're essentially going out to find new companies to build long-term relationships with them for supply of their goods. Mm -hmm. And that, there's, to me, a lot of similarities between procurement and investing. Yeah. I was always invest, interested in the... Uh, sort of business part of procurement. I see. Because I, I got to visit uh, probably like 50 different plants across Asia, Europe, or, or US, mm. where you, you just get to see so many different uh, company setups. And that was tremendously fascinating for me. I see. Right. So, uh, you know, do you own shares in the company when you were looking at it? When you see, when you see it go down or you, or you didn't? You're, you're talking about my... The company I was when you were in yeah, yeah, the one that got into chapter, chapter 11. eleven. Oh no, I wasn't. Okay, I I did uh did I buy shares? I think I did. <laughs> then I sold it. Okay. But you know, yeah. when you're in chapter eleven, it, it's like totally ridiculous. It's it's the the drama that I think there's there's uh Lot of speculation, a lot of rumors. It's not really investing. I see. Right, right. I see. So so uh you went from you know a bogle hit to use your words, you know, you, you love ETF and uh, you made the switch over to more individual stocks, partly because you, enjoy, as you mentioned, you enjoy uh, looking at individual companies and all that. Um, yes. What, when did that happen and were there other motivations or was that the big motivation to switch? Um, I, I can't point to like a particular point of time right. where I said that, that there's this switch over, right? It's just, uh, I guess curiosity. And to be honest, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing, right? It's, mm. it's uh, I read a book, uh, I think it's called Buffettology. Ah, and ah. now the thing about books is when you read about all this, uh, how, how do you invest and so on, everything's so neat and tidy. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> it's like, oh, this looks so easy. Yeah. It's neat and tidy. Of course, the maths is so easy. And then when you get, you go into the stock market and start looking at proper companies like, oh my God, what is happening? It's a lot more mess, what a right? mess. <laughs> like, this looks okay, but there's so many like, like warts and so on. And, and that's where, where it made me even more curious to, mm. to sort of dig in and understand more and more. But essentially, 
I, I think in the early days, it's a bit like throwing spaghetti on the wall. I didn't know uh, what was the, the style I, I should invest mm. or, or what sort of uh, approach I should take and so on. I was just sort of throwing everything and, and seeing out of interest what will stick. I see. So and, what, was the first, uh, what was the first one that stuck to you, right? Uh, in terms of investing style and how have you like evolved since then? I, I can sort of describe it into like uh, five phases. So okay, okay. I, I can explain. So I, I think that the first phase is where, where a lot of people start. Um, when you first start investing, when you first buy your first stock, I, I can't even remember the first stock I bought. Wow. Um, Are you still holding on to that one? No. Okay. <laughs> That's why I can't remember it. Yeah. But uh, in any case, uh, I think when you first start investing, uh, there are a lot of, there's like tr trying to drink from fire hose, right? Mm. It's a bit like um, there's so much information coming at you. You do not know which information is important and which is not. And um, you start to worry about very minute things. Uh, uh, things like uh, why is the stock market going up 1% today and my stock is down? You, wow. you have th that kind of thoughts, right? And you'll be checking your share price like uh, 20 times a day or something like this. <laughs> Sounds hoping right. that it'll somehow change during that one hour. If you stay harder, then the price will go up, right? Or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. <laughs> and that's your research. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of the key moments in phase one was that uh, the stock which I bought, and I still remember this, it jumped 10% in a single day, right? I see. And I couldn't find out what was happening. It's like, why... Why, why did it move up by 10%? So I was searching high and low. And eventually I found out that, oh, it was just because the CEO rang the opening bell in NASDAQ. <laughs> okay. And that was it. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> that, and from that experience alone, it made it clear to me that share price and the value of business doesn't matter. It's disconnected all the time, right? And it's, it's one thing to read it in a book, but to experience it uh you know, for yourself to, to see this sort of situation happening with your own eyes. I, I think it's sort of burns it into your brain. I see. And this was phase one. So how do you yes, categorize correct. phase two? The other phases. Yeah. So phase two is when um, you, you sort of get uh, more comfortable with holding shares. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the biggest challenges is um, not selling when shares start to go down, right? Mm. Um, for me, phase two is when... Uh, now that I think about it, I may answer your previous question. It's when I started becoming more comfortable with stocks versus uh, ETFs or index funds. Mm. Because it was always a question to me um, whether I could actually do it and whether I should just stick with ETFs or index funds and just be done with it, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a bad option at all. And that was the moment where I, I saw with my own eyes that uh, you could buy companies you know what's happening in the company. You know how much cash that company has. And I started feeling more comfortable holding those companies because uh, when the stock market falls, I know it's not going to go to zero. There's mm. money in that. This is a company which is not doing badly. They have cash on hand. They're generating lots of cash. And I felt more comfortable holding those shares instead of holding a, an index with 500 different companies, ah. which I do not know what's happening in those companies, right? Mm. But for this one company, I know what's happening. Mm. And that's where I started getting more comfortable holding. Conviction. Right? Yes, correct. Yeah. But uh, I still wasn't very satisfied because even though I was holding, I was not really buying when those shares are ah. down, right? 
I could hold, which is good. But uh, I, I wanted to make sure that I had the conviction to actually buy when shares are down, which sort of brings me to phase three and phase four. Mm. Right? Phase three and phase four was, um, and maybe to put some context to it, this was, I started around uh, probably 2005. 2005. Phase one. You were still with uh, 2005, you were still with Delphi, I think. Delphi, right? The, wow. Okay, now I have to think. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> history, history. Yeah, history. <laughs> yes. History is hard, you know, even if it's your history. Right? <laughs> this was 15 years ago. I remember it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, that was that was in Delphi. Yeah, uh, Delphi. That, yeah. that was when I started getting bored and so on. Okay. And then uh, 2006 was when uh, I may have subscribed to the Motley Fool. Mm. Because I wanted to look for ideas. I started with their small cap service. Okay. Then very quickly realized that, wow, small caps are really hard. Mm-hmm. And then I, I decided to sign up for their stock advisor service, which mm-hmm. was more, uh, I, I decided to build up a, like a base first before trying all these like uh, crazier ideas called small mm-hmm. caps. And um, phase three, I, I think was during uh, 2007. And 2007 was when the, the year before the, the big crash happened, right? In the great financial crisis. And during this run up, I, I sort of avoided buying for most of the time. I uh, only bought two shares, uh, Netflix in okay. January mm-hmm. and uh, Chipotle in February. Okay. But the rest of the year, I, I sort of stayed out, right? And when the, the market started to fall, I, I started to buy like crazy, right? Uh, now, the problem was I I had no discipline at all. I had a lot of discipline in not buying when the stock market went up, but when the stock market started to fall, I had very little discipline on what I was buying. Mm. And that caused me to get into companies which I I normally wouldn't have uh, bought. I see. Uh, and I was buying them just because the share price was falling. Right? Just, just curious, you weren't adding to your Netflix and Chipotle or you weren't adding enough in, in your view? Okay, so uh, I'll, I, I will explain that uh, as part of phase four. Phase okay. four, okay. I, I think the, the key moment and probably the most defining moment was somewhere in April 2008. Wow. Right. Um, when I sort of ran out of money, I was buying all the way down. Mm. Um, and I was a bit flustered because this this downturn was going to take like one and a half years, right? Yeah, the recent yeah. downturn last year was only like three weeks. Yeah. But this one's like one and a half years, right? So it dragged on for quite a bit. And at, at that point, um, I, I came across this article was by Bill Nyren. He was talking about uh, Michael Steinhardt. Mm-hmm. And Michael Steinhardt had this really interesting technique where he he just basically sold everything. Oh. Whenever he felt that he was out of step with the stock market. So mm. whenever he he felt that um, whatever he had on his portfolio, uh, he had too many wishy-washy positions. He had uh, he wasn't sure what to do with this company and that company. He would just sell everything. Okay. Right? And by doing that, it sort of clears the slate. I see. And allows you to focus and forces you to think that, okay, now that I've cleared the stake, would I buy the same companies which I own before I sold, right? And that I think is the asset pass. I see. And it's like, when sp- I- Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, okay. No, it's like uh, starting from a, a blank piece of paper. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so 
the the at that point I, I didn't really sell everything, but I did this mental uh, thing. I, I just imagined someone went to my portfolio, sold everything, and now I'm all in cash, right? And what would I do? And that process itself helped me realize that, oh my gosh, I, I had this, like I bought all these companies, which I lower conviction on, and all the companies, the Netflixes and so on, which I had higher conviction, I wasn't adding to that because mm. the share prices wasn't falling as much as those uh, which, I, which I had lower conviction on. Mm. So I was just blindly buying all these companies, right? Which I had low conviction on. And the worst thing is I didn't realize I was doing it. Mm. Wow. And that uh, made me aware of, of this phrase from, uh, what is it, Warren Buffett or Ben Graham? The, the market is here to serve you and not to instruct you. Ah. And that that phrase really struck home then. I, I, I immediately became clear that I was approaching it completely wrongly. You, you think that you are buying low and selling high by buying a shares which have fallen, mm-hmm. but actually you're not, right? You're just randomly buying. And that made it clear to me that I need to prioritize uh, the companies which I want to own before I talk about what I want to buy. And that minor switch was fundamental to my uh, investing approach today. What well, what happened when uh, before you realized this, right? The mm-hmm. the you you lost money in some of the companies that you kind of sprayed over, or you were fortunate enough not to uh, get affected negatively, but in theoretically you knew that you made the wrong decision. Um, I I think that I I can't remember whether I I. I, I was really bad at documenting all my positions sure, like that. Sure. I'm much better today. Mm. Um, but I, I think that um, part of this, this sort of like a parallel understanding was, which was building up also was that uh, I started to understand um, uh, David Garner's way of investing yep. and why optimism is so, so important Right, because I, like I said, I was throwing spaghetti in the wall. I was buying companies like uh, some of parts, approach, uh, asset plays. I was buying companies with low PEs. Mm. So I was trying all these random approaches because they just look interesting. Right? <laughs> I, I was just curious, like how how each method will work. And then you you start to see all these companies like your Netflixes, your your Apple. This is supposed to be the the worst. Recession. I, I know it sounds weird today because we just had a pandemic, <laughs> but uh, back then, back then, <laughs> um, it, it was the worst recession ever. And then you just see all these companies posting double-digit uh, revenue growth, right? Yeah. That's like, wow. Okay, if they do <laughs> do so well during during a recession, and then when they come out of a recession, it's gonna be amazing, right? Yeah. And that that started uh sort of. T- tilting my, my interest towards small growth uh, oriented companies because uh, mm. I, I could see that these are so much easier to, to understand, right? When you when you buy a value uh, company or a value-based stock or, or approach it from a classic Ben Graham approach, um, sad to say most of the time you're buying into a company which is broken somehow, right? Mm. And because that company is broken somehow, you're trying to figure out whether it's broken as as much as the market is suggesting, right? Mm. And and all you're, you're thinking uh, is, is this uh, whatever's broken in a company, can they fix it, right? And that's the main question for a value investor itself. 
And to me, that's really hard, right? And I was living in a company which was in bankruptcy. I mm. see how hard it is. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> then, and on the other side, you have these companies which are already doing well. And all you have to figure out is, can whatever they do continue on in the future, right? And to me, that that puzzle is so much easier to solve compared to the first one. I, I'm sure that a lot of people are good in the first puzzle. It's just that I, I found for me, the second puzzle is a lot easier to solve. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I know it's a little bit annoying, but I want to tell you something that I think can be really helpful to you. I can tell you're really interested in the stock market and want to learn more about it so that you actually know what you're doing, especially when today things are getting more complex and complicated. That's why we came up with the Stock Investing Blueprint or SIB. It's our signature e-learning program that teaches you how to pick the right stocks most of the time, buy and sell it at the best possible time and manage your stock portfolio systematically. It currently has more than 10 hours of content and it's growing. You'll also be part of a group of like-minded investors that can help speed up your learning process. To hop on the program, click on the link in the description or go to learn.viral.co slash courses slash SIB. Actually, right. the second puzzle is like, as long as they don't screw up, <laughs> because, right? It's, they've gotten all their cogwheels correct. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as they don't screw up, that's where your 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 the answers to your question will reveal. Whereas, yeah, the momentum is there. Right? Yeah, whereas mm -hmm. the the ones that have, uh, like what you say when you were in a company that was going through chapter eleven, they even have cogwheels missing, and there's so many <laughs> parts for you to try to figure out whether they have the cogwheels all in place, right? No, I, 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 I the the, the yeah. whole process of chapter eleven really, and and it was also lucky because um, the the person leading the chapter eleven charge was an expert. In chapter eleven, okay. she we actually uh, the CEO was uh, uh, Robert Steve Miller. Okay, he had actually done something like ten bankruptcies before wow. he, he came to Delphi. Wow! So he's like a total expert in bankruptcy. Um, he, the the moment they filed, he has like tons of presentations which he spread to the entire organization, <laughs> describing exactly each step, each department, what steps should you take, and what should you do, right? So he had all this like, like, I, I don't know what you want to call it, a, a dosset of documents, unzip and then just spread it to everyone. Wow. And then tells you how to negotiate with the, the supplier, what mm. you should ask for and so on. Because once you file for bankruptcy, suppliers are going to call you, right? Yes. And they, they're going to ask for COD and so on. So how, how do you manage that situation? Mm. So um. It was a very interesting experience because you saw firsthand how he manages a bankruptcy. And essentially it's about looking at the whole company. There are some parts which are, have rotten out and then some parts which are still really good. I see, and I see. You'll, you'll see some vultures circling around the company. Uh, and, and in a way, uh, to put it in a crude way, it's almost like a butcher looking at a piece of meat and trying to cut off all the, the not so good parts and, and try to preserve whatever value there is, uh, unfortunately for shareholders, it doesn't mean that you'll get anything out of it no? because uh, I, I think we have seen from Delphi's bankruptcy, GM's bankruptcy, the previous shareholders actually got nothing. 
they were left yeah. holding the bag actually, eventually. Yeah. Actually. It was worth That's zero. True. So what yeah. I was doing, like buying like, the shares of the company was totally like, it was going to end up at zero anyway. Whichever right. point, whether I started at $2 or 20 cents, it was going to zero. Yeah, great. I, I want to roll back a little bit on your history because you've been, besides uh, the bug, that you've gotten the investment bug, right? Mm-hmm. I, I noticed that you love being in procurement and the, the earlier point you mentioned about mm-hmm. it's a very good way to understand the business. So probably take us through, you know, you were with Advantas, you were with Delphi, you were very G, you've, uh, and then mm-hmm. back to Advanced, no, Advanced, Automa- Advanced Systems Automation, Delphi, right. very G, mm-hmm. Advantas, and then Bayer. <laughs> she was like, uh, electronics, and then uh, suddenly, pharma. pharma. So yeah. pro- pro- probably take us, and maybe relate that to helping you in your investment realization, actually, or mm-hmm. investment career, yeah. Um, it's going to sound strange, but uh, the first job I took was because I, I felt I couldn't communicate very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always had these thoughts in my head and I struggled to put it into words. So I decided to take a job which would force myself to talk more. I see. Which at, at that point was uh, being a project engineer. So you, as a project engineer, you have to talk to all the different departments, whether it's designers, uh, procurement, purchasing, um, the manufacturing, logistics, the store guy, and so on. So a whole range of different people. Mm. And, and that, that led me to one of my early mentors who, who was this guy who always thought, said that he has like uh, primary six education and he was always making fun of my, my university degree <laughs> and so on. <laughs> uh, which was totally fine because, but uh, his grammar was horrible. <laughs> but... Uh, the, the interesting part was that even though his vocabulary was so limited, mm-hmm. whatever vocabulary he had, he made such good use of it, ah. which made me interested. He, he could convince suppliers with his limited vocabulary much better than someone with a wider vocabulary, right? It's just a matter of uh, what words you use and how you convince people. So, and that was one of the, the key points, which um, to me, investing is also about communicating to people. How do you put whatever thoughts you have and crystallize them on paper? Mm. So that, that was, I think, the, the main contribution for my first job. I see. Um, then I, I, I came to Delphi. Um, I have no idea why my, my, uh, they, they decided it's totally fine that I'm from a different industry, but I'm thankful I'm in it. Uh, the good thing about Delphi was uh, even though they would eventually file for bankruptcy, uh, there was this period of time where they would just fund uh, procurement people to just fly around uh, Asia, Europe, and uh, US to look for suppliers. Sourcing. So, uh. Yes, correct. To, to look for new suppliers, basically. Mm. And that allowed me to basically connect with you know CEOs, uh, high-level people. And you you have more references, right? The first plant you, you visit... Um, they might show you like this setup and this planet. Uh, these are my machinery and you'll look at it. It's like, okay, I have no idea whether it's good or bad. <laughs> it's okay. Because mm. you have no references, right? Correct, correct. But then once you have more and more references uh, in more and more different countries and you see things like a Japanese plant in Vietnam or you see a totally automated plant in uh, Bilbao in Spain, right? Mm. And you, you see all these possibilities and you have the, all these points of reference, which helps you understand uh, or, or gives you data points to compare uh, whether or not a, a CEO is really as good as he, he says it is, mm-hmm. 
or whether their operations is as good as they say it is, or you know the kind of problems which can happen within the companies. You know how, how do you work with a company, or, or how do you transplant like an Indian company into China, for example, mm. right? Which there is, by the way, mm. there's there's a company called uh, Sundram Fasteners in China, mm. and they have a road named after them in China. Wow, are they listed? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you see such uh, iterations also in China, you have like one Sundram Road, right? Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. Very, very interesting. <laughs> and so th- that sort of uh, made me curious about different companies. And, and there's this fascination about how they compete within these companies. Huh? Um, now that I think about it, one of the, the training sessions with Delphi actually had was on a finance for non-financial managers, right? Mm-hmm. Oh. And, and being a training session, they, they pull out Del- Delphi Financial. <laughs> okay. And I, I think that was also the moment where I suddenly saw, oh, you're only making 3% profit margin. <laughs> <laughs> then it's like, oh my gosh, I do so much work and you only get 3%. <laughs> Something is wrong here, right? <laughs> because it, it, it's like, for automotive, right? For every single part which goes into your car, there's like this bunch of documentation. It doesn't matter like whether it's like a screw mm-hmm. or, or tires or something much larger. There's this much- Dossier, right? Doc- yeah, a dossier of documentation. There's this whole process you have to go through uh, to qualify that product for that one machine. If you change machine, you have to qualify again, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you, you start to think- there's some sort of disconnect here because nobody goes into a car showroom and admires the bolts in the car. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's like, wow, what nice tires, what nice bolts, I'm going to buy this car. Nobody ever says that. They probably buy it because there's a moon roof, true mm. story, mm-hmm. or two cup holders. <laughs> and that's, I just saw that there's something wrong with this model. Like, why is this disconnect? And why is it that a Coca-Cola, which just does something tremendously simpler, mm-hmm. and they earn 20% margins? Mm. It's ridiculous. Something's mm. wrong with this whole thing, right? And this sort of made me more fascinated with how, how uh, and this is probably where history comes in, right? Mm. Why did all this industry become how they are? And how, how do this, all these different companies within the industry compete, right? And what, what happened back then? Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, great that you, you know, this, I, I'm very interested in the semicon industry as well. So Delphi, right. is, especially automotive uh, mm-hmm. tier one suppliers, which Delphi is, right? Um, yeah. Why pharma? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like tap 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 and uh, okay Avantes Delphi Verigi still you know still adjacent and then all of a sudden pop by Bayer <laughs> I, I'm gonna touch on, on Verigi for a moment yeah. because uh, it was also important uh, in the sense that um, the culture within Verigi eventually is a spin-off from Agilent right and Agilent is a spin-off from HP yep um, so there was this um, HP way culture within mm-hmm. uh, Verici itself. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a really interesting period of time because you read about good cultures and so on, but you never really experience it, right? Yep. And within Delphi, you couldn't really experience it uh, as well. Um, the, the funny thing is Delphi had a lot of documentation, mm-hmm. but um, 
when it comes to ownership, uh, it's it's much less compared to uh, what you see in Berichi, right? I see, I see. I'm sure Delphi has its own strengths in terms of engineering and so on. But when it comes to other parts of the business, they, they have some catching up to do, right? So, but in, inside Verici, you, you could see there's this open culture where people were just like really challenging each other. Mm. And one of the key moments was I, I, I spent around six months in Switzerland, right? And so happened the, the CEO of Agilent actually came down to, to, uh, to Agilent in Switzerland. And that meeting was like such a big eye opener for me because like he stood there and he was describing the company strategy, right? And all these people on the floor, they were just challenging him. Why are we doing this? Are you wow. sure this is the best way? Wow. And to me, it was, I imagine this picture, people like taking verbal grenades and tossing it to him, right? And he's standing there with his tennis racket and he's sparing every, all the verbal grenades. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, okay, this is how it works, right? And it, you just get to see firsthand what, what a good, good culture can actually bring and helps you recognize what a good culture is when it comes to investing. And so now it comes to about the part about pharma. So the, the thing about Bayer is they're an acquisitive company. Mm. And when they buy, um, they actually categorize companies into like three different buckets, right? Okay. They, they don't say it explicitly, but once I saw the picture, I, I, I kind of knew what it meant. <laughs> so basically how it works is, um, and maybe Bayer people will disagree <laughs> since I'm just there for a year. Yeah. But there's a category of companies where basically you can just run on your own, right? Okay. They're not going to disturb you, right? You are making profits, you're growing, you're doing fine. So I'm just going to leave you around. So if you're in their bucket, you're safe. Okay. The second bucket is when uh, Bayer starts to get involved, right? when your growth starts stalling or you, you start to have some problems with profitability and so on. And that's where they start to come in and try to be helpful by cutting costs and so on. Okay. And the third bucket is probably when they, they prepare you to get sold. Mm. Because um, within the, the whole case of Bayer, um, within the company itself, they have a very defined process of how they actually acquire companies and which companies they sell. The, the, the division which I joined was actually uh, doing radiology. Mm, it was doing mm, equipment. Mm, mm. So it's, I, I'm not doing like drugs or pharmaceutical. It's a bit of a weird division within Bayer because it's totally disconnected with everything else they do. Yeah. So they have a, at, at that point of time, they are very different now. They have crop science, they have material science, and then they have pharma, right? Mm, and within mm. pharma, they have this little division which does uh, equipment, which... Uh, basically injects iodine into your body ah. and um, to, to look at um, any defects you have on your blood vessels. So that, that was how I actually got into uh, Bayer itself. Uh. And I, I think that the experience is also useful because then you're able to compare um, the audit stringentness between a semiconductor industry automotive and versus a pharmaceutical and there are, there are some huge differences between them. Well, what are these differences that you find that surprise you as well when you discover them? So I like uh, when I go for audits, right? For the companies itself, I, I get to go with the quality engineer. Okay. So I literally stand behind them and see what they, they see and look at what they ask. So, for, for example, for automotive, um, 
they're very big on error proving. Mm. Right? And error proving is about uh, making sure you do not have any errors in manufacturing the part itself. Yeah. And this is a Japanese com- concept called bokeyoke, okay. um, which uh, one example would be like, if you have a process which goes through 10 different steps, right? Uh, you go through process number one, when you go through, when you get to process number two, process number two should check for whether process number one has been completed, right? Uh, process number one could, could be about drilling a hole on a piece of plate. And process number two would have a sort of uh, a jig that you can fit that, that uh, part into. If there's no hole, then you cannot fit through it. Or if, if that hole's uh, tolerance is wrong, mm. it totally cannot fit. So that's one way you can actually check for processes uh, within that manufacturing itself. The, the interesting part about um, pharmaceutical is that they actually look for pest control. <laughs> yes. So you you would actually look for um, the uh, they'll 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 put all this uh, I don't know what they call it rat traps. Okay. It's like a little box with uh, rat poison inside okay. and there's a hole on the side. Okay. You have to look for where it's placed, like next to the door, and they'll look at things like uh, could you have instead of use pallets, uh, have a block of uh, rat poison so that you know how whether that uh that poison has been taken or not. Because mm. if you have pallets, then you do not know how many pallets were there and whether you need to top it and so on. So they'll be looking for things like this. Interesting. Huh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, 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 I'm getting a good lesson here, MJ. I think you too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, so, you know, you, you mentioned just now about how David Gardner kind of shaped a lot of you. Is that, would you consider that phase five? Um, Phase five, uh, uh, it's more like phase four. Okay. So I like to say that David Gunnar was the one who sparked my my interest in growth investing. He made it um he he made it clear why optimism works, basically. Mm. Right. And uh, another key character in my my sort of development is a gentleman by the name of Tom Angle. He's from Kentucky. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, he's retired today, but he was the one who helped shape and forge. The, the details behind my investing approach, right? okay. uh, how I invest and so on. And from there, the, the third person I would point to is someone called Jeff Fisher, who's also from The Motley Fool. Okay. And he, he made uh, whatever Tom and, and sorry, Tom Angle and, and David Gardner okay. uh, did more teachable. I see. Right? And phase five is what I would describe as uh, refinement of my approach, right? I I know what I want to do. I know how I want to approach investing by then. But phase five was, was all about refining it and making sh- and adding more perspectives and uh, making it better, basically. Mm. So what would you say, right, based on this refinement and your whole entire journey of investing, what would you say are some of the successful uh, examples that you've personally made investments in? In the refinement phase, or uh, no, well, in 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 your whole entire process, what do you think are some of the best investments that you've made that best exemplify you know what you ah, believe today? Okay. So the biggest winner in my portfolio is actually Netflix and Chipotle. Okay, right. But um, back then I, I can't say that I I've like saw it coming. Sure, or, sure. Like I I mean like it was a totally 
different business back then. Anyway, yeah. the 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 part where I'm most sort of like, yes, I did this because I know what I was doing was in 2010. That's when um, the stock market had recovered. Okay. And then there was this decline and I was so happy because now I know what I'm supposed to do, right? Mm. So that's when I pick up shares like uh, Apple, ah. uh, Amazon, um, I think it was Intuitive Surgical mm-hmm. and a few other companies. And that was when I, I already knew that these companies were growing. I've done my homework. I was prepared. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what I want to buy, right? So I, I'm not going into a, a, a bargain area and, and just grabbing whatever is cheap or, or looks looks interesting, right? I go in knowing exactly what I want. And that to me is a huge difference because I, I know exactly which company. I'm watching specific companies instead of looking at which company has fall or, or watching the news to see which, which stock has fall 10% and so on. I'm just looking at those companies. I don't care how much they've fallen. I, I just want to buy it at a good value point. So it's like you've already walked the grocery aisles many, many times. Right. And you've got like Nestle, you've got whatever brands of milk, but you know right. exactly that brand of milk is what. And then suddenly when the whole grocery store goes on sale, you won't even look at the rest. You just go to that particular aisle, that particular. Exactly. Yeah. Is, right. that, is that analogy correct to describe it? In a way. It's actually exactly the analogy I use <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um, there, there are people who, I, I think if you, to use the grocery store, I, I actually use the grocery store analogy also, yeah. uh, where uh, in, in Singapore, if you go into the grocery store, there's, there's always this like shelf where it's like deal of the day or deal yeah. of the week, uh, bread, which might be, you know, expiring soon, which is selling on a discount. Um, that works as well, but it's not for me, mm. right? I, I know what I want. So when I go in, I, I just go to that specific product. I see what kind of discount I get. I don't care if the other stock is selling for 30% off. Mm. This is the company I, I want even down, though it's only down by 5% or 10%. Wow. Fantastic. Right. So uh, walk me through, like, let's let's take uh, an investment you've made, right? Um, Let's say you mentioned, uh, I think- Netflix. Netflix, Chipotle, Apple, Intuit. Surgical. Intuitive surgical. So that's, yeah. that's, let's zoom into Intuit, right? Because I've, uh, I've heard of the company before, I've never really looked at it. Um, what, what got you excited about a company and what made you consider it as one of the stocks that made you feel, yes, you know what you're doing? Okay. So I, I think that um, the, firstly, it, it had uh, financially, it was extremely stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, by by then, I finally figured out how to f- calculate free cash flow. <laughs> <laughs> I found, finally figured out like how important it was, and this is one of the key factors I focus on. As a business itself, um, it was a razor razor blade model. Mm-hmm. So once you establish yourself within the uh, the the hospitals itself, I just imagine that it's going to be really difficult for uh, other competitors to come in because. You're talking about a doctor who stick his entire career on a machine and how and became an expert on a machine. He's probably earning more because he's expert in that one machine. Mm. He's not going to give it up that easily, right? Mm. But so once you cross that chasm, you'll be able to establish yourself. Then I, I think that your your base is just going to grow. And for intuitive surgical, I think the interesting part was they were only managing uh, very specific surgeries in the past. And eventually they started to actually expand this to more 
uh, different types of surgeries okay. and do general surgery. Okay. And you, you could just see that um, it, it's going to grow like much bigger than what it was uh, back then. Mm. Uh, did I expect it to go as big as it is today? No, <laughs> but I, 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 never, I never think that a company can go up by 10 times. Like I, I never pick a, a company thinking that, oh, this company is going to go up by 10 times. Nobody knows that for sure, right? Yeah. But I, I could see enough positive things uh, on how this uh, stock could actually work or this business could actually work. And this is further solidified by my experience within Dell, within Bayer, mm. where I, the division I was in was very well established within, um, within the, the uh, radiology segment itself. And they were, I, I do not know what their installed base is, mm -hmm. but, um, and I, I don't think I can like reveal like numbers or anything, sure. but just to give you a sense of scale, right? They they sell maybe thousands of equipment. Okay. But the 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 strangers which they sell, it goes into millions. Mm. And, and you can see how that business model really works. Right? Within uh Verici itself, uh, even though it's semiconductor equipment, it's also very much a razor razor blade model where mm. you sell the equipment itself. There's all these different modules they can slot in. Mm. And those modules are actually the money makers. I see. Wow. I see. Uh, intuitive uh, surgical just uh, some numbers in context it made 172 times your money yeah if you if you bought it since the so, beginning right? since the beginning yeah, yeah that's interesting times. yeah so oh, i didn't know that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's a little bit about your successes right how about some of the stocks that that you've not done well in and didn't pan um, out. Yeah. yeah didn't pan mm -hmm. out and why why do you think they didn't pan out Okay, how much time do we have? Oh, <laughs> how much time do you have? How much time do you have? We've got all day. <laughs> so many. Mistakes. You can just pick one, you know. Pick. Yeah, one, and then from okay, there, uh, I think the one which stands out as maybe the most embarrassing is uh, a stock which I bought in April two thousand nine. Wow, you so specific, you know. April two thousand. I I don't. Yeah, you remember your keen or not when you bought? Uh? I don't For think what? Oh, I think maybe July 27. Oh, okay. So I people think. people remember all their losers, right? The winners don't remember exactly when they were. Okay. <laughs> winners were still holding. Didn't, you know? yeah. <laughs> I actually didn't remember the date, but uh, I, I mentioned April 2009 because it's really important because mm. March 2009 was when the uh, great financial crisis bottomed out. Correct. Yes. So I just bought like one month away from the great financial crisis. My timing could not be have been better. Right? <laughs> you probably get a monkey throw darts on yeah. the, the stock board. You probably make money, right? Yeah. But I I went all engineer mode on on, on this, right? And I, I started compiling. I should mention this because I, I find engineers do this all the time. <laughs> guilty, guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you you have all these companies, then you 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 sort of like um, list them down and then you have all these like criterias for each company, right? And then being the engineer you are, you you plug in numbers like, okay, this is a five for growth, uh, two for financial, yeah, yeah. three for management, right? And then of course, as you put numbers in, your natural tendency is to optimize, right? Yep. It's like, okay, now that I have a numbering system, I'm so smart now, let me optimize and choose the best <laughs> possible combination, right? And, and that's why I did. And I ended up with this uh, company called, uh, it's going to sound super dodgy. Yeah. 
American Bioengineering, Oriental Bioengineering. I wow. can't even remember. Was it a small cap or is it a mid-large cap? It's a, it's a traditional medicine company in China. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. okay. <laughs> wow. Which uh, was one of the Motley Fool recommendations. Anyway. Ah, okay. um, and so through this process, which made me sound so smart as an engineer, mm-hmm. I, I bought this company and essentially that, that business is zero, right? Wow. Um, even though I bought like one month away from the great financial crisis, uh, which further solidifies the point that um, it's not so much about when you buy it, I have much more profitable companies buying from you know, 2007 mm-hmm. when this was just before the crash that you can buy at the totally right time and still make the wrong decision. Mm. So what, 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 what did your model miss about that company? Yeah. <laughs> what did my model miss? What was it in your spreadsheet? You know? <laughs> I think the biggest learning there is you, you can't reduce your companies into a single Excel line. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? Um, how can a large company with all its specialties be reduced to a few numbers? It, it just doesn't make sense. It's like taking a piece of paper, poking a few holes in it, and then trying to look at the company through those few holes. You'll just get bits and pieces, but you'll never get the full picture. Oh, I right? love that. But, but do you think that's that's where the physicists in you, that, that's why, right? Because <laughs> in physics, everything, everyone tries to reduce everything into an equation. Yeah. Or, you know, there's so many forces, they want to reduce it to four. Oh, I'm, you have I've E seen. equals MC squared. <laughs> so elegant, yeah. so short, so nice. And do you think that actually kind of contributes to that uh, bias in a way? Um, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am a trained engineer, so that I, I see that as my natural tendency. Mm. So I, I think that in investing, you have to to understand your, your own tendencies. I, I measure performance not to show how good I am, mm. but to show whether or not like my past decisions, which I made, if I made correct decisions or wrong decisions, right? Mm, mm. And, and those performance informs me of what I actually learned, what stocks I actually missed out. And um, that actually helps me learn, right? Yeah, right. yeah. It's, it's great that you brought up this analogy because um, the, the struggle for a lot of investors is that they try to reduce it to one number. You know, most, most of the time when, you know, we're in a, somewhat of an education line and people ask, John or MJ, what's the intrinsic value of the stock? So, <laughs> so it's like MJ mentioned four is generous already. These guys are trying to reduce it to one. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. is this uh, is this is is our you know since we like history, this is our era of astrology essentially. <laughs> this is our astrology, you know. Yeah. But uh, you know, you mentioned in your in your spreadsheet when you were giving numbers on huh, that, uh, you you gave a number to management, uh, the tree for management. I, I find it very interesting, right? So uh, obviously, I'm not going to ask you about the the model. So how you how you categorize one, two, and three and whatnot. But uh, what what role does management play into your analysis? And like, mm-hmm. how do you tell what's good and what's not? Because you know, in in America, especially where you're mostly invested, right? Um, yeah. Every CEO has a marketing gene, that's right? right. They they mm-hmm. they built to market, and that's why they became the CEO in the first place. And it can be hard to discern, right? Who is legitimate, and who is not? So, in your assessment, how how important is management, and also how do you assess them? Yeah. Um, I, I think it depends on the type of business. There, there have been companies where uh, where the presence of the founder has been 
like fundamental to the success of the company, right? Yeah. And there's also situations where uh, professional CEOs actually did extremely well with the company as well, right? And I, I think that it, it really, one thing is it depends on the stage of the company, mm-hmm. right? I, I think that early stage companies will benefit from the founder operator, uh, but it's also not a given. Uh, what I actually look for is uh founders or CEOs who are comfortable in their own skin, mm. who are able to handle criticism, mm-hmm. who know exactly who they are. Mm-hmm. And if someone were to criticize them on some shortcoming, they would immediately accept it because they know that for themselves and they actually didn't know, they need someone to tell it to them, right? They know that that is their weakness and they surround themselves with other people who actually are able to help them um, on their weak. Uh, areas. Huh? Um, the other characteristic which I like is something which uh, Jim Collins brought up. Mm. Uh, he wrote the book uh, Good to Great. Yep. And it's something called the Stockdale Paradox. Mm. And, and this goes in the bit about procurement. Uh, when you speak to your supplier, you always want to put the brutal truths on the table, right? You don't want to beat around the bush and then have people have a misunderstanding and so on. You want to put this is what's happening. It's not going to be pretty, right? Mm, mm, mm. If you want the truth, then you have to take the, the ugly parts of the good parts, right? But at least you know what's happening. And then they follow it up by telling you uh, what exactly they're going to do to handle the situation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that this is an important part of being a, a good uh, management. I see. But you see, that that's the that's an interesting thing that you brought up. Because like for any investor, including yourself or ourselves, right? These kind of qualitative things, you only get to see when you're inside or at the operations level, whatsoever. So mm-hmm. how would you advise uh, investors, you know, including people like us, what are the tips and tricks that you use to access quality of management from the outside, you know? So- Yeah, yeah. obviously you don't yeah. have, I assume you don't have Re Hastings number. Yeah, right? I don't think you have Re Hastings <laughs> so or Mark, Rand- Mark Randolph's uh, personal number. Hey Mark, how's, how are things going on in Netflix, right? So how do you, you know, how do you do that? Um, I, Ironically, I think it's easier for US companies. Yeah. Because their CEOs, uh, they appear in presentations all the time. Mm. They you know the moment earnings are reported, they, they appear on TV, they explain, uh, they have uh, earnings calls uh, where they, they get uh, grilled by the analysts and so on. Not always great questions, but um, <laughs> there, there are some pointed questions they, they sometimes have to answer. Mm-hmm. And most of the time I look for how they actually manage these pointed questions. So do they acknowledge that there's some sort of problem? Do they try to explain in very clear terms, as ugly as, as it is, or on what kind of issues they have? And do they acknowledge it and, and try to, uh, um, to do something about it? The, the reverse would be, um, managers who refuse to acknowledge it and, and try to defend it by quoting some random metric, which uh, is totally nonsensical. Mm-hmm. I understand. Have you had company numbers look great quantitative wise, perfect, you know, fits the spreadsheet perfectly. Oh, yeah. Then <laughs> met, met the CEO, met management team, and then it's like, I'm not touching this company at all. You know, have you, have you had that conviction scenarios before? Um, great numbers. I, I I wouldn't say like I I was like super interested in this company. There was this local company within um Singapore, Singapore, right? 
I'm not going to name names. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> it's going to be a bit critical. <laughs> but uh, they have this uh, business, main core business, which was doing well. Okay. And then they had this side business, which they were growing, which was adjacent to their main business. I see. And I thought, wow, this side business is going to be huge, right? Mm-hmm. Then I, I went for one of their earnings briefings. And then I, I saw, uh, I, I met the, the head of the core business and then the, the head of the um, sort of the, the new business. smaller new business, right? And I could see like the, the guy who's managing the main business, he's like totally dominant, right? I could mm-hmm. imagine the both of them in the boardroom and this guy is always going to win right? when it comes to allocation of resources and so on. Mm-hmm. And when I start asking them about, hey, why, why did you choose this new line of business? Their answer was like, oh, we knew someone from Japan. They wanted to do this. So we did that. And it's like, right. <laughs> like, mm, okay. And, and that really broke the entire thing because as, as interested I was as I was in that business, I, I just couldn't see how it could work out. I see. I see. Right. Yeah. And and it's it's would you say it's more prevalent within uh a certain geographical region or do you find the <laughs> same uh kind of patterns like what you said, good numbers and then management? Is there like a, a higher percentage of this kind of great managed companies overseas, you know, overseas, I mean, outside of the region, or do you see a balance in between Asian well-run companies and US well-run companies? I mean, from your sampling. So I'm more familiar with the Singapore market and the US market, right? Mm-hmm. So in a way, I, I don't know how to make a good comparison because um, like definitely there are more CEOs because there are more companies there, mm-hmm. right? You, you can kind of a company which does like wooden decks and it becomes like a 10 bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you can't do that in Singapore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, the ironic thing is that there's, there's more exposure uh, and more access you have with uh, um, managers who are overseas. Huh? In Singapore, uh, the main thing you want to attend is the AGM because mm. that's when you, you are able to meet management and ask questions. But in the US, the AGM is a non-affair. It's like totally uh, nobody attends the AGM to, to listen to the management. There's like interviews, there's like earnings calls and so on. So I, I do think that a lot of the, the principles of US style management is, is starting to come into Singapore. There are a lot of good mm. uh, Singapore CEOs, I feel, who are who not just care about profits, but also how, how the business contributes to their employees, mm. to, to the community and, and to the, the different stakeholders with large. So I, I do find such managers uh, within Singapore as well. Great, great. I think it's, it's good that they, it, it, is it in the past, do you think is it because that shareholders in Singapore and you know, including Malaysia where, where we're based, don't demand hard enough, that's why this kind of disclosure, this kind of transparency doesn't exist or you think mm-hmm. is some other reason for that actually from your experience? I, I'm not really sure on that. Okay. okay. I mean like, um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean to a certain extent, I can understand why they don't do it because, uh, you know, they, are, they, they may not be as big as the US company to employ an entire, you know, investor relations and so on. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure why 
there's not more access. I mean, we have all the tools. Yeah. And I really wish that, you know, even for AGMs to be recorded. Oh, yeah. Not- oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, what I started off ironically with US talks mm. because uh, that was where I could find information much easier. But when I when I sort of switched my focus back to Singapore stocks, I was a bit shocked that culture uh, shock. <laughs> yeah, it's like there are, there are companies out there who just say like uh, my revenue increase because business volume increase. Uh-huh. Then it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> 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 and and they like to say things like, uh, barring any unforeseen circumstances, we expect to be profitable for the year. Then it's like. Of course you should be. <laughs> what else won't you be, right? So I so I, I think that um, there's a sort of maybe different culture. People like to attend the AGMs. They speak to the management team mm-hmm. uh, directly. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe even some businesses, they don't really need like a super talented CEO because the business itself is so um, strong on its own. I see. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, before we move on, right? Is that is there a very memorable CEO that you yeah. would, you would say yeah memorable CEO a CEO that you really like, you know, and he, and why he may not be you know big, but you know probably yeah, yeah. even a small cap company, but then he left a mm-hmm. lasting mark, you know, like yeah, someone like some, your CEO for the very G one. I mean, he left a lasting mark in how company culture, but in investing, do you have any? Oh, Delphi. That was oh, Delphi. Oh, Delphi. Okay. Oh, very G. Very G. Yeah. Um. I would say the CEO of Sats. Uh, oh, Sats. Okay. Um, he he was really impressive for me. Okay. Uh, he just became the COO of Grab. Huh. Ah. Yeah, he resigned from Sats and joined Grab. And uh, the the thing which impressed me most about him was he could go uh, high level. Okay. So he could describe the company at the high level, which okay. was not easy, by the way, because okay. Sats have, I don't know how many subsidiaries they have. They they have like a lot of subsidiaries. Okay. And but when questioned about the details of all these individual subsidiaries, whether it's like Indian subsidiary or Oman or like in China and so on, he could describe in very uh, minute detail. Wow. For each, he could answer the questions which were actually directed to the CFO. <laughs> and he could actually, uh, this was one of the comments by, by one of the uh, employees within SETS, by the way, because I, I described this to the person and she said, yeah, exactly. He, he knows so much about the company. He greets people by name. Wow. Uh, we, we did an interview with him and um, you, you can see that that culture come through uh, very clearly through the people. And I think that is one of the things why why I joined Verici because uh, to be honest, when I went for the interview, right, it's in my mind, it's like, okay, just go through the motion and mm-hmm. let's see what, what happens. I, I, I had very little expectation, mm. but that, that culture component was so strong, right? And it just came through from the people and I could just feel it just from that interview itself. Wow. And I, I, I think that that, that really shows me how to detect all this uh, little, uh, I mean, how do you put a number to that, right? Yeah. So I, I probably shouldn't be putting numbers on the spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually yeah. I had a wild idea when you said that as well. And before we come back to carry, carry mock, right? Um, one way to scuttlebutt uh, MJ or even uh, uh, Hui Leong is next time you want to invest in a company and uh, just apply for a job and go for an interview, man. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's not the craziest idea. Yeah, it, it's like a glass door review, but you know, in person, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, assuming I, the 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 guy the guys up there are interviewing you, la. Yeah, yeah. They get, they get HR uh. might be a bit difficult. Yeah. <laughs> So, right. you know, I, I just Googled it while you were like, like explaining. Carrie, Carrie Mock, 50 years old, joined Stats in... Yeah, so he was only in Stats for about two years, three years. Uh, Alex Hungate. Oh, it's not Carrie, is it? Yeah. Ah, Alex Hungate. Okay, the different guy. Okay. Wow, it's interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, this one. Ah, Alex Hun- Alex Charles, Hun- Alexander Charles Hunsgate. Okay. Right, right. Nice. Okay, so uh, before we, we, we end, right... Um, we also like to ask everyone, like, what are you excited about in terms of uh, stocks you're looking at and maybe even industries as well? Mm-hmm. I think in terms of industries, there are a few industries to me which are so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Some are well-established, but totally underestimated. Okay. Right? Um, I, I think, for example, uh, people are underestimating how big internet companies can become, mm. even though we have a few trillion dollar companies. Mm. I, I do think that there'll be even more trillion dollar companies in the future, just because of how how big and widespread the internet has become, right? Mm. Over the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, the prolif- proliferation of smartphones okay. has, has really spread internet across <laughs> the globe. And that really creates the, the base for multiple types of business to be built. I see, and I see. to me, trends like uh, fintech, for example, uh, cloud computing, even though it's boomed by so much during the pandemic, still very early days, I feel. Mm. Uh, um, <clears throat> the, the pandemic has really unlocked and, and sort of uh, make people take that first step of using apps to order food, for example, or, or to pay for something. Mm. And I think the onus is now to all these companies to actually tap on this first step which people have taken, right? Which is really big, right? You, you're gone from zero to having that, that app on your phone itself. Now, now I have to convince you to use that app more. Um, and I, I just feel that the opportunity is totally underestimated of how big all these companies can be found. Uh, on more nascent type uh, industries, I, I like genomics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a company which I invest in called Illumina, mm-hmm. which, uh, which bought a company called Grail which is contested, but uh, let's not talk about that for the moment. <laughs> okay. But uh, basically they, they came out with a drug, uh, blood test, which can detect uh, 50 kinds of cancer, right? Oh. Which to me is like huge, right? Because if you are able to detect cancer early, then your chances of survival is like tremendously, tremendously better. So you, you can see how uh, Illumina, which has all these machines. So again, it's a razor, razor blade model. They have all these machines, which they supply to different types of uh, businesses. And from it, you can actually build multiple types of uh, businesses, uh, whether it's uh, cancer research, whether it's like uh, population, genomic research, uh, diseases and so on. And each market is like so huge and so nascent, right? And the, the possibilities just are mind-blowing because I, I can't even imagine the amount of directions they can go through mm-hmm. and what they can actually use uh, all this DNA for. Do you think that the management will be able to execute uh, in, in your assessment? For Grail or Illumina? Um, for both, I guess, because they you're saying that Illumina acquired Grail, right? Mm-hmm. So that yes, correct. Um, I, I have confidence that Illumina can, 
Um, the, the reason why it's contested is because uh, when they bought, uh, Grail used to be part of Illumina, right? They, they spun off Illumina. And then now, because uh, at that point of time, um, the technology was not uh, fully developed yet. It was just an idea, right? Mm, mm, so mm. They, they funded it. Uh, I think Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. Okay, I'm not sure about Bill Gates, but a, a few large investors funded this effort, right? And they, they came to a point where uh, the technology works, right? And it, from, from what I can tell, uh, there's very strong uh, or increasing evidence that this, this blood test actually works. And now the question is not so much about um, technology. Mm-hmm. I feel it's more about the business part of it. How, how do you uh, distribute all these tests uh, all over the world? How do you get it on the different um, health plans of all these different countries? Mm-hmm. And I think that is what Illumina is really good at. They have all these uh, relationships with the UK government, with the US government. Um, but they're also facing some hurdles because they are now being uh, sued by the EU mm-hmm. and the US FTC because they feel that they are going to sort of like create unfair competition, which, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I actually don't understand that because uh, Grail doesn't have business in the EU, but they're mm-hmm. still being sued anyway. Mm-hmm. They're pulling out some obscure rule to, to say that, uh, I mean, it's all guesses, right? You're, you're talking about business which does not exist yet. Uh-huh. And you're imagining that it'll be, uh, this company is going to dominate and be anti-competitive, which is totally not true. They've created other industries which are non-anti-competitive, uh, non-natal invasive mm. testing, for example. Mm. It's another area which they actually uh, catalyze, but they are, they are not the only player there, right? So I, I do feel that... Um, their move is guided by their principles that they want this. They, they can't uh, you know, spend time or two or three years in court and have this stuck there. They, they decided to take the bold step to buy the company. They, they manage it as a separate company mm. and they're going to help spread this, this um, test all over the world. That's and if it comes to Singapore, I'll sign up. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Maybe can let, let's let's wind it down a little, and then there's there's a variety of uh, listeners uh, who listen to a podcast. Some who are, you know, uh, very very into stocks, and some who are just taking baby steps. So maybe if you could guide the listeners through, if a stock is given to you, an idea, a stock idea from maybe mm-hmm. red or whatever, can you take us through your methods or your process mm-hmm. before you come okay. to a decision? So. Um this comes from my experience with Delphi now. So um, when I initially, when, when I was in Delphi, you, you go into the plan, right? Yeah. And they'll give you this three, uh, three Excel spreadsheets okay. <laughs> to actually fill in. Uh, okay. Which when you start is, is really good, right? Because you, you have this checklist to sort of go through, right? Yeah. But it's also very limiting because um, eventually I saw that um, all the specialty or the thing which makes a company special just gets reduced into like Excel spreadsheets. Mm. Um, which to me, how can that be? How can a large company just be three Excel spreadsheets and then small company also three Excel spreadsheets? They it's almost like putting the potato through through the uh slicer. Oh. Yeah, slicer, right? Yeah. Everything looks the same after that, <laughs> whatever shape you, you were before, right? Mm-hmm. And that didn't make sense to me. So 
what I like to do is just to get a sense of what the company is. I, I obviously I cannot come in with without any biases. The biases are there, right? Mm-hmm. And then I, I try to look. I I like to download the investor presentation mm-hmm. because that is to me like a blank sheet of paper, right? You can use as many sheets of paper you want to describe your business, and as you said, now there's a gene for CEOs to market, right? Mm-hmm. So tell me the true essence of your company, that true idea of your company within a few slides in the most compelling way possible. Mm. I need to get a sense of what you are before I look at your financials. Right? And of course, the financials will add weight to whether or not you're executing and at which stage you are in. And, and then from then on, you, you try to understand where they stand within the industry. Um, are there competitors? Uh, why do customers keep on going back to them, right? Uh, I, I like to ask three questions. Uh, number one, do customers have to keep on going back to them? Because that, that will tell you that um, whether or not uh, they have to look for new customers at, every time they want to expand. Mm-hmm. But if customers keep on re- coming back to them, then uh, you don't have to, right? Which is a big thing because mm-hmm. you'll run out of customers if you go the other route. Yeah. Second, second part, um, I, I think it's about what is it that makes you so special, mm. right? Why, okay, customers are going back to you, but then like, why are they going back to you? Mm. Right? Why was it you're doing, which is so different, so special that people just go back to you, right? And third question will be like, why is it so hard to replicate what you're doing? Mm. And, and I think those three questions usually help me um, sort of form an opinion about the stage of where the company is because some companies are still very nascent, very mm-hmm. interesting concept, but execution is still very early. Mm-hmm. And then some are already well-established with all their multiple modes, which are interconnected, which you can't actually knock down. So I, I do see things as a sort of range of possibilities mm-hmm. where on one side, you have companies which may have a very high magnitude, a very low probability because you're not sure whether it can be successful. Yep. And on the other end, you might have a company with very high probability of maintaining their position now growing, mm-hmm. but maybe the magnitude might not be as big. The runway ahead may, might be short, a lot sh- uh, shorter. So there's this sort of continuum which uh, companies tend to fall across. Yeah, right. it's, it's interesting that you the sequence was you look at the qualitative aspects first rather than the financials, you know? And and was it done in the past in the reverse from your experience from phase one to phase five or has it always been this way? Uh, I can't tell really. Okay, no. <laughs> I, I don't really remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess in the past, I like the reason why I bought Netflix was partly because I thought that what they do was so cool. <laughs> uh, why don't they have this in Singapore, right? Yeah. Because uh, back then there was like no streaming correct, uh, correct. videos, right? Yeah. And, and they had this DVD by mail service where you watch a DVD and then you, you'll send it back. They'll send you the next DVD. And it's like, that's so awesome. Singapore yeah. has such a great postal system. Why aren't they doing this? Yeah, right? exactly. So, um, and that was one of my main... In- Impetus as, as a customer, I, I just saw that, wow, this is really awesome, right? Something you would sign up for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and the the financial part took a bit longer because uh, 
there was all this, everyone was like pointing to like different metrics. You should look at this and you should mm, look at that. Mm, mm. But over time, this is where Tom Angle comes in and, and really helps you understand uh, what to look for, why to focus on it and why it works. I see. What are these things that uh, we should be looking at? Yeah. I think, um, I firstly, I look for revenue growth, right? Uh, for me, revenue growth, if you have no revenue growth, then you, you, eventually you'll hit a wall on how, how much you can actually grow, right? Yeah. So that's like the first line I look at. The The second line I look at is your free cash flow, right? Mm. How are you funding your growth, right? Are you negative? If you're negative, means you're taking on more debt. Mm -hmm. Or are you issuing more shares? And how does that work? Why are you spending? I'm not saying that it's wrong, right? Because there, there are some companies we have been successful doing that, mm -hmm. like Tesla, yeah. which I never bought. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, like, I, I like to know how your growth is being funded. Is it sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. and, and will that lead to much larger free cash flow in the future, which will then help uh, sustain the business uh, and have this sort of very nice um, sort of uh, model where as you build more, it generates more free cash flow and allows you to build even more. And for the restaurant industry, especially at Chipotle, right? Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful thing when you have, um, and it's really interesting, easy to understand as well. You have uh, a certain number of uh, stores. You're generating a certain amount of uh, free cash flow, even though you have already spent an amount to actually build more stores. And those more, those additional stores are just going to add more free cash flow, which allows you to build even more. And you have this sort of self-funding model, which helps you to grow uh, much larger in the future. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, before I don't ask, like, yeah. why why do you think you missed uh, Tesla? What yeah. what what yeah, didn't why? It, why didn't it sit well with you? Yeah. I'm gonna you give you my cop out answer. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> so, um, I I figured it could be partly due to my experience within the automotive industry, mm. which created a bias. But Delphi does apply to them, right? At the moment, do they? I have no idea. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, so for for Tesla, um, I already had one company which was burning money like crazy, aka Netflix. Mm, mm. So my cop-out answer is that uh, I couldn't see myself buying another company which is burning money like crazy. Mm. And as time goes by, you, you sort of see all these successful companies which somehow manage to burn money and the investors don't care. Um, and you start to wonder, like, how, how do you differentiate between a Tesla with some other company, which is totally like not a, a Tesla, right? Like, like a Nikola or something. Or, or a, what was that company called? Pandora. Oh. <laughs> um, so uh, I've I started to sort of tighten my criteria around this, this companies. And to me, it has to be worth it. So for a Tesla, I, I guess it should have worked based on my new criteria, which mm -hmm. is totally mm -hmm. useless for the situation now, <laughs> that um, you should make it worth it, right? I mean, like if if I were to invest a company which were which was burning money, then it has to be a company which has a chance to dominate in the future. And Tesla had that opportunity. Mm. I wouldn't invest in a Twitter, for example, because even if you grow big, you're going to come up against Facebook and Google, yeah. right? And what, what are your chances of actually becoming more successful, 
I'm not saying you cannot make money with Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's just that it becomes less enticing for me. The, the next thing is about, um, and, and this is a very nascent theory I have, um, because I, I'm always worried on, on whether or not uh, I've been enjoying this luck based on low interest rates. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a certain amount of luck involved for these companies as well because we've gone through this period since 2007 where interest rates were just super low Correct. the whole period and that allowed them to borrow money and actually fund all this growth which in turn uh, put this financial barrier for any other company who wants to actually come in and uh, and uh, actually do what they do mm. uh, Netflix today I think spent something like 17 or 18 billion on content yep and that to me is the entry price of competing with Netflix. Are you willing to spend that amount of money to compete with Netflix on a chance that maybe you'll be successful or maybe you'll be not? I think even an Apple yeah. wouldn't try to attempt that. Yeah. And and Netflix is already competing with the guy, the likes of Marvel and all that has even a higher barriers of entry for content creation, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, I'm going to segue and probably this is the last part of the podcast with regards to your experience at the smart investor and the struggle of a publishing arm or an education arm issuing kind of reports and then under the Hawkeye of the Monetary Authority of Singapore and trying to like, hey, you know, you guys are not licensed analysts yeah. because it's, it's a struggle for us to because we know the situation with Motley Food in Singapore and why they couldn't yeah. really operate there yeah so maybe can you give us a, some maybe paint the context and the landscape of you know writing uh, financial or, in, or very more specifically uh, investment content that is in a way inferring to either a buy or sell call but not specifically and at the same time the struggles of you know um having to please customers with this because most of them don't want to do the work. So maybe paint that picture for us. I think that uh, within Singapore itself, right, um, there's definitely an interest from the from the government to encourage uh, investing and investing education. Mm. Um, the difference was when the Motley Fool came in, I think uh, it's a question of timing as well. I see. Because they... I think when they came in and they wanted to do this uh, this sort of subscription model, it was sort of too early in the in the picture. And uh, ironically, it didn't it wasn't until July two thousand nineteen, I think, where the MAS actually came out and, and gave a clear guideline of what you can say and what you cannot say, mm. right? And I know this because uh, we actually consulted lawyers before we set up a company of what we can do and what we cannot do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was really important to us that we uh, stay focused on uh, the, the reason why we, we formed the company, which is to help our customers uh, who have been with the Motley Fool and was, who still like this and uh, who still uh, very much want to follow us. I see. And those guidelines, when they first came out, I was a little bit shocked because um, it made it clear uh, that there was very little difference between licensed and unlicensed. <laughs> and the difference was that uh, you could actually talk about companies, but you cannot say by that. Yeah. <laughs> and that was one of the major differences. And that was kind of it, right? Yeah. 
And anything else you can actually do, you can run a screen, you can publish your results and that's totally fine. Yeah. Um, you can talk about companies you own and you buy and that's totally fine. Mm. Um, so th- there's this sort of uh, area which I would totally welcome uh, more regulation. If you, I, I would be willing to sign up for any licenses mm. which would help us be be more uh, straight and narrow, mm, right? Mm, mm. Um, because right now it's, I, I think that uh, a lot of bloggers, a lot of companies, uh, even I think the banks, uh, they invite bloggers to speak on their platform and so on. Yeah. And basically I, I think that's one area where uh, that, that document from July, 2019 was really helpful. And if, if there's some sort of license and we have to do our homework as well, because one thing we found out at, at, at uh, the Motley Fool is maybe that uh, we, we might not have gotten the best legal advice ah. to, with regards to which license we take up. I see, and, I see. Uh, that, I think that uh, probably hobbled uh, some of what we could do. I see, right. I see. I, I have one last question, uh, actually with regards to the motley fool and the motley fool way of looking at things. I'm not sure if you follow this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we notice people at motley fool, especially those inspired by David Garner, tend to have a very um, almost opposite way of looking at diversification when yeah. it comes to, uh, you know, most successful investors, they'll tell you, hey, if you find something really great, you bet big. But mm-hmm. David Gardner is, you know, in addition to optimism is, hey, you know, everyone starts at the same same starting line. Everyone deserves mm-hmm. the same amount of allocation. And then mm-hmm. you kind of let it run. And then if you're a bit more excited about it, then you add to those positions. Is that your mm-hmm. way or do you have something different? Because for example, like uh, we met Eugene, right? Eugene, Eugene yeah. <laughs> he did so well with 80 stocks. So yeah, yeah. Like, wow, that's, that's crazy, right? I think surging is also like 50, 40 stocks, something like that. So how do you describe your diversification uh, plan? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I'm very much uh, more like Serging and, and Eugene, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it's really hard to tell the future, right? Uh, uh, I, I had a lunch with a friend before. He was asking me like, what made me pick Netflix, right? And I thought about it for a while. My mind went blank. <laughs> Then I, I saw it was a bit shocking because like how could I not know why why I picked Netflix right? Mm. But then I slowly realized that whatever criteria I had to pick Netflix didn't really matter mm. because it was a totally bu- different business back then, right? Mm, 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 it was like totally DVD by mail, and now it's like totally streaming. They they still have a very small DVD by mail business, but it's like totally irrelevant whatever criteria you had at the start, right? Which then, um, the, the other thing was um, this experience I had with uh, Apple, right? Mm. I was trying to, and this maybe goes into like intrinsic value. Yep. I, I like to use this example because uh, in 2009, they, they had about 40 billion in revenue okay. or zero, right? And I remember trying to guess like, okay, what are they going to be like in like three years time, right? And then I was thinking, how about 25% growth? Mm wow, that seems very aggressive because I'm basically saying that they will double. Yep. Every 25% will be double almost every two and a half years. Yeah, Yeah, Uh, roughly three years. Three, yeah. yeah. And so they're going to be 80 billion, right? Yeah. And 
the only point of reference you had back then was like Nokia. I don't, mm. don't, don't laugh, please. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the reference you had back then. Like Nokia, the maximum, maximum revenue they made was like 70 billion, right? Mm. And you are saying that this company, which is like, which just launched a phone like four years ago, are going to exceed Nokia within the next three years. Mm. That's kind of bold, right? Yeah. <laughs> But guess how much revenue they made in 2012? I'm looking at it. 2012. Let me stretch. Uh, 156, to be precise. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> and today they're like oh. double. Uh, they're 365. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the thing here is how, how do you imagine such a number yeah. for your spreadsheet? Yeah. Right? I mean, like, your spreadsheet is limited by your imagination, right? Yeah. How big you, and are you a Steve Jobs who are, is able to imagine this? Well, even Steve Jobs, I bet didn't imagine how big this was. He, in His first uh, comment was that he would think that selling 10 million iPhones was going to be a huge success. Yeah. They do it within the yeah. first year yeah. and they gain 1% um, market share. Market share. Yeah. That, that was his expectation, right? Yeah. If I can summarize, and, uh, sorry, yeah, go on. And, and like, how, how would anyone know that this could actually become such a huge business in the future yeah. that they would so, have uh, recurring businesses, they would have watches and so on. Yeah. So how, how do you put a number to that, right? Yeah. yeah. If I can summarize what you're trying to say and you tell me if it's a fair description is, I think as investors, we need to focus, we need to be directionally correct, but not the magnitude. Yes, correct. Um, I, I think that you need to find as many companies as possible. Uh, going back to the question, because I realized yep, I didn't yep. answer it. Yep, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't diversify for the sake of diversify. Um, yeah, just for for being trying to be. I must have healthcare. I must have this. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't diversify that way. I, I diversify. I so-called diversify because I just find more and more companies I'm interested in. Mm. I place a lot of small bets. And I, I look and see which one is, is uh, which works, right? And yeah. ironically, um, this eventually leads to concentration mm. because some companies are going to grow faster than the others, right? Imagine if you started uh, with all these companies at $10, uh, 10 companies, $10, uh, you invested $100. Mm. One company goes up to $100. The other company goes down to $5. Mm. Then... Automatically, yeah. the big winner becomes a big part of your portfolio, the right? yeah. And it's sort of a natural selection in that, that sense. And you, you get to watch all these companies as they grow up and you get to add to them, right? Because the, the first question or the first sort of like feeling people get when they achieve their first like uh, two bagger is like, why didn't I buy more? more. Yeah, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> But the thing here is you could have actually bought more because th this growth is not going to happen over one or two years. You're talking about five, 10, 20 years. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. And you know, even if you invested in 2010 for Apple, you still made 16 times your money, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Even if you invested uh, in, I think somewhere like 2016, still up around five times. Yeah, that's when Buffett went in, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And even when they reached like a trillion dollars, I still felt that they, they could actually grow even bigger because mm. uh, they had this growing uh, recurring businesses, which uh, changed the entire nature of the company. It's going to be much more sustainable in the future. Yeah. 
Right. You know, I just realized one thing, right? Because you mentioned in phase one, you're an ETF investors. And you know, people <laughs> want to be ETF investors because they are diversified. Correct. Then I realized, actually, I believe, and again, this is just my observation. I believe that you still have the spirit of an ETF. It's just that it's no more the S&P 500. Now it's the optimism ETF. That is your portfolio. <laughs> Oh, I actually haven't invested in ETS before. Yeah. It's more like unit trust. Unit trust, sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah. But um, I I think it, it goes into that fascination I have with different companies. I, I am yeah. interested. Yeah. Uh, I just find it boring if you're just going to look at 10 companies all the time. It's like- That's true, man. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Yeah. That's actually um, like a very interesting point about the psychology behind their diversification, right? Because if you're like so concentrated- Yeah. We only got 10 companies. Uh. Oh, quarterly reports, you only have. You know, it's it's two score of thoughts. You know, some people said, wow, got 10 companies. Uh. That means four quarterlies to reach for each company, yeah. multiply by this. But then, in a way, when you have like 100 companies, you may not need to know like every single change yeah. in your revenue, but directionally. Yeah. And if you are wrong, so what? It's yeah. only 2% of the portfolio, right? Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is that. Uh, when you study across multiple businesses, you, you start to notice patterns which occur across the businesses. Correct. Like when, when Chipotle uh, fell into problems, when they had that E. coli crisis. Yep, yep. Right? And uh, initially, everyone thought the, the brand was damaged forever, right? And it may have held some sway because uh, they, they suffered for about two years, right? Mm. But eventually, when I saw that, oh, actually, the problem is not so much about their brand, right? Uh, of course, the brand took a hit when all this news came out, but the longer-term problem was they did not have a good uh, delivery system. Mm. Put it bluntly, they they made great food, but they have no way to put it into the hands of their customers, right? Mm. And that to me was a solvable problem because I, I've already seen, I, I've held another company called Panera, mm. which had gone through that problems and I could see that oh, this is totally fixable. They yeah. have the cash, they have the free cash flow. They can fix this problem. It's, And um, I, I think that that helps you sort of gain a sort of, I like to call this shallow investing. Because <laughs> <laughs> people say like a deep dive and I'll know everything about a company, but mm. I know I'll shallow dive <laughs> across more companies. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you get to see all these companies which are really, really smart. Uh, when they start to head in the same direction, uh, that's probably where the industry is headed, right? Um, back in 2013, Google started talking about uh, how smartphones could actually uh, proliferate internet across the world. Because at that point of time, even though uh, probably in Malaysia and Singapore, uh, internet connectivity was so prevalent and mm -hmm. everyone was, like we are living in a world where internet connectivity is a given, right? Yes. But in many, I, I wasn't aware that in many uh, parts of the world, internet was still uh, not prevalent still. And for, for that part, I, I think that um, the, 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 the um, when, when you see all these different companies, your Facebooks, your Amazons, your Apples, start focusing within smartphones and how, how do you survive in the smartphone world, then you know that that's going to be the direction and you know, investing even in 2013 would have been amazing for all these different companies. Yeah, great. Um, one last question, and then probably a shout out for for your channel. Sure. How important has mentors? I, I mean, you've mentioned a few, and um, 
you actually worked with the legendary Dr. David Kuo of uh, <laughs> and then now he's he kind of like, it's still, it's still- I your. always remember his jester hat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how important do you think mentors are in helping guide and let's just say probably tips to the audience out there. Mm-hmm. For those who are not into this industry like us, like mm-hmm. how do they get mentors in a way? Um, I think when you find a great mentor or a great investor who's willing to share, I, I think you take all efforts to connect with them. Mm. So for the case of Tom Angle, he lives in a small town in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Did you so, fly there? Uh, I, I, I was on a trip with wow. Bayer. Wow. <laughs> right. But uh, I was in Pittsburgh. So it was a six hour drive to Kentucky, mm-hmm. uh, to, to and fro. So okay. 12 hours in total. Okay. But um, it may sound crazy. Uh, we, now that I think of it, it's kind of crazy that I drove like 12 hours just to meet someone <laughs> <laughs> on the internet. Yeah. And my, my colleagues are like, oh, I met someone on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but basically, I, I, uh, when you find someone like that who's willing to sit down and go through like every minor question you have, grab hold of that guy, spend time with that guy, invite them out for coffee, learn as much as you can from them. Mm. Because I, I, I can say that that is super, super rare. The, the person who's willing, who knows, and, and who's capable of what they're doing, mm-hmm. but yet willing to share whatever knowledge uh, they have. Uh, a person like Tom Angle has been investing for 50 to 60 years. And you're not going to get this kind of knowledge um, from anyone else, right? Yeah. This is this is sort of very like one of the biggest problems within investing is that you only have so much years within yourself, right? Yeah. The feedback loop is really slow. You you invest in a stock and you only know whether you're right or wrong three years or five years later. That's right? Right. Mm. And how many three years or five years do you have in your life to actually bet on that? And having such mentors who are able to see or travel roads ahead of you uh, is tremendously uh, to me very important. Right. Wow, I think that is a very good. Uh, how many three to five years do you have? You yeah, know, that, yeah, that, that's powerful, man. That is, uh, really, I think really, that's really a great, great yeah. quote. So, yeah. Where, uh, where can people find you, Huilion? Yeah, where? if people want to connect with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably they oh. have to fly to Singapore, maybe swim, <laughs> you know. You know hey, now it's opening on 29th November. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they, they can find me on thesmartinvestor.com.sg. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to email, you can uh, email us at hello at thesmartinvestor.com.sg. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm trying to connect with Doctor David for a long for the longest time. I put it on LinkedIn, but he's just like kind of yeah. ignoring me. So <laughs> should, we go, should we go down to Singapore? In, yeah, uh, knock on the door, Doctor David. Hello, I'm here. Yeah. No, it's it's great. I think it's been a joy to meet uh yourself and you know not just you as well, all the other the motley fool gang right in Singapore. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully we can uh, meet up during uh maybe December January whenever yeah. we're going down to Singapore. And let's let's not debate on who has better chicken rice again. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> this is your Malaysia, right? We all know the answer lah. So. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you so much, uh, Hui Leong. It's, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for spending time with us. And, uh, you know, for those of you all listening, I'm pretty sure you enjoyed this podcast. If you like this sort of content, please share it with your friends. Give a like, comment, subscribe. Click on the notification bell so that you know when uh, more awesome guests like Hui Leong will appear in your feed. And, yeah. Uh, see you guys. See you guys. <laughs>